The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? After China lost in the Second Opium War, intellectuals in the country racked their minds for how the Chinese nation can survive in the new and industrialised world. It's a topic that has been discussed on this podcast before. Listeners may remember the episode with Bill Hayton, author of The Invention of China. But for some reformers, the problem with China wasn't just political or cultural, but linguistic. Written Chinese was extremely complicated, not helping the rock-bottom literacy rates of the common people, around 30% for men and 2% for women. Spoken Chinese could be any of a vast number of regional dialects, which were too often mutually unintelligible. Meanwhile, the lack of an alphabet in the Chinese script meant that it just wasn't easily adaptable to the new communication technologies that were revolutionising the world at the time, like telegraphy and typewriters. In The Spectator earlier this year, I reviewed Kingdom of Characters, the new book from Jing Tzu, who is Professor of East Asian Languages and Literature at Yale. Jing's book is an excellent account of the efforts to simplify, modernise and adapt this ancient language by reformers who thought that the stakes were extremely high, even the future of the Chinese nation. Looking from the vantage point of 2022, it seems like some of these reformers really did succeed, and through nothing less than extraordinary methods. I'm delighted to say that Jing Tzu joins me on the podcast now. Welcome to Chinese Whispers. So Jing, I wonder if we can start by looking at the script itself. For the uninitiated, can you explain what qualities written Chinese has? Well, I think the best way to start is to think about the Western alphabet. You know, each letter in the Western alphabet is actually pretty simple. And we don't think of it, but letters are also composed of strokes. Like A actually has three strokes. But the most we get is really capital E, which has four strokes, depending on how you write it. And for Chinese, it's in characters. It doesn't have letters and doesn't have 26 letters. It has thousands of characters. And each character would have many, many more strokes than that. I think one of the record-breaking, the, you know, the numbers always rise whenever they find a new character, but it's around 68 strokes per character. So compositionally, it's structurally very, very different and abides with a different set of principles. And that's why many people think of it as pictographs. In fact, it's, it's a misnomer, but a misnomer that stayed for a very long time, where people thought characters actually resembled the physical appearance of what it described or what it was trying to portray. So for instance, character for horse or human and so on. Um, but it's actually more or less not really true because in modern Chinese lexicon, really no more than 3% are actually pictographs proper. And even if you look at those, it's not going to be obvious that a character for a sun is actually going to look like the burning sun because it's actually rectangular rather than round. Yeah, and you mentioned strokes. Are you, there's also throughout your book something called radicals, which I suspect might come up later on. So just let's define that now. What is a stroke and what is a radical? What do we mean by that? So 
Stroke, by the way, is just a continuous line that you can draw on the page without lifting your pen. So it could be a dot, it could be a short line, it could be a long line. And as for radicals, so this is something, some people think of it as the root or stem of an English word, which is the easiest way to grasp it, but it's actually not quite right because the whole idea of the radical was actually imposed much later than the origin of character writing. And there was a man, Xu Chen, who I talk about in my book, who decided that he would take stock because it's such a giant mess. He would take stock. He took, I think, stock of 9,000 or so characters and he wanted to figure out how you can actually categorize it in a kind of meaningful way because otherwise it was just such a gigantic inventory. So what he realized was there's certain parts of characters that seem to recur over and over again. So he decided, okay, but that's a pretty good way to slot and to taxonomize characters. So he finished this in around 100 CE and this became immensely useful because people started to use it as a way of actually tagging characters so that you can put it in a dictionary. And the characters themselves, they're not phonetic. So by looking at them, you don't necessarily know, although there are some hints from the radicals themselves, but you don't necessarily know how you pronounce it. Not like when we look at an English word, then you can kind of spell it out. Well, actually, as it turns out, characters are phonetic, but not in a way that's nearly as transparent as Western alphabet. So, for instance, if you look at a character, usually there's a part that's kind of like the radical that tells you, signify what the meaning is, kind of gives you a hint. But there's also a phonetic part that also cues you because it basically borrows simpler characters that people knew how to pronounce and put it in harder, more complicated characters that could be pronounced similarly or in the exact same way. Now, the problem with that was, so Chinese had a very elaborate system of cueing characters phonetically, so people had to say them. But of course, sounds drift over time. I don't know if you watch old films. My parents watch old Hollywood films, and you could tell the English spoken in the 40s and 50s are very different from the English that's spoken now. And so Chinese characters kind of drifted in pronunciation over time, and there was no way to really keep track of that. So, you know, they had an internal phonetic system that they could use to sound out how characters sound, you know, how, how character was supposed to be pronounced. But that didn't really hold water over a long period of time. Whereas the Western alphabet, you just learn 26 sounds, right? That's pretty fixed. And we, we pretty much know, you know, A is A, B is B. And so that actually became a more stable system. So Chinese actually, over a long period of time, didn't quite have that. Mm. And I do want to talk about regional dialects as well, because listeners will obviously know about Mandarin and Cantonese, but there's way more to it than just that, isn't there? There is. If you think about it, English actually has many different pronunciations as well. I mean, I think just within the UK, you're famous for, even near London, for different class-designated accents or you know, inflections, let alone regional when you go to Wales and whatnot. And then Chinese is true. There are basically seven big topolect groups, what they call topolect, because there's so many dialects that have to group them under bigger categories. And under each of those topolects are several dozens of, can be several dozens of different dialects. And some of them sound like they're just a little bit off from one another, but others are incomprehensible. So one of the problem was, you know, around the 19th century, last quarter of the 19th century, officials who were there to distribute famine relief would have problems trying to communicate in between the North and the South. And it also was a huge problem. And some people say, you know, linguists have documented how the difference could be, you know, as wide as, you know, French and Spanish. 
Yeah, and that's where the word Mandarin comes from, isn't it? From that bureaucratic history. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So Mandarin was a kind of a common speak that officials used, and it became kind of the basis for the standard Chinese that's spoken. And it's interesting that you mentioned that this drifting of pronunciations, because I, you know, from my part of China, I come from Nanjing, but my ancestral home, my Laoxiang, is Yangzhou. And some of the things that we say, it's quite funny trying to make older people in my family try to write down what it is that you're actually saying here, because it does feel like there are certain words that only exist in verbal language and actually doesn't correspond to a character at all. And people have, you know, trouble saying, oh, I actually don't know how to spell that one, how to write that one. Do you find that? Yes, exactly. That is still true. In fact, that's how China, you would, there are these beautiful stories of poets in China and Japan, literati, who will communicate via written calligraphy. So, you know, like if you imagine if you and I go to a cafe, we'd be chatting and they would take out instead a scroll of rice paper and an ink brush and start communicating by writing characters to one another. So it is quite an interesting phenomenon, but it's hard to imagine now. But, you know, before Western alphabet came along, came to China, that is, Chinese character writing was actually the alphabet of the region. The Japanese used it, the Korean used it, and the Vietnamese even borrowed it to sound out their own language. So, you know, it did have this phonetic property that, you know, it was the ABC of the region. It was pretty, before you know that there's a better one, right, that's better for modernity and what you think of it, Chinese was perfectly workable as a regional lingua franca. That's fascinating. And just talking about that variety of regional dialects as well, there's an incredibly funny moment in your book where you detail an early attempt to create some kind of homogenized received pronunciation. But it ended up being a fight because one of the linguists thought another one had called him a son of a bitch when in fact he was just talking about rickshaws. Is that right? Yes, yes. This is actually the, the 1912 Congress, I believe you're talking about, with the National Phonetic Alphabet Standardization, where there are you know, a bunch of linguists and these, you know, these late 19th century language reformers all came together. And to think about, okay, now that we're a nation, we have to have a proper language of the national language. But whose pronunciation is going to go by? The North, the South? And in fact, to this day, people in, in the South or people in Sichuan would tell you they came a very close second were it not for this infamous, infamous episode. But Wang Zhao, who was to blame, <laughs> who was to blame was to be thanked for the victory of Mandarin, uh, Beijing-based uh, Northern Mandarin. He basically finagled and kind of manipulated his way. That he held a separate session. But as you know from the book, you know he's also a very unusual character, which is one reason I really enjoy writing this book is that, you know, these are not your known revolutionaries like Liang Qichao or Sun Yat-sen, that these people are really the second and third stringers of history who really try to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that our language survive? Mm. And I thought that they were so passionate about it as well, because it wasn't just Wang Zhao who got a bit catty, let's say. Uh, it was also people who were disputing over how to create a Chinese typewriter, for example. You know, it's this idea of these bookish linguists having really kind of bitchy fights with each other on paper over essentially pronunciations or the minutiae of um, strokes and radicals and that sort of thing. It was incredible, these characters. 
And until I read your book, I hadn't quite realized how arbitrary the creation of a national dialect was. You know, these these people, linguists, fighting it out and really just, as you say, having renegade meetings just to really sharp elbow their way into received pronunciation. And that was when I realized that's why Putonghua has a Beijing twan to it. You know, I grew up in Nanjing near Shanghai and more south in the country. And it wasn't really what the region dialect, whether it's Nanjinghua or Yangzhouhua or Shanghaihua, it's not really what sounds like that, but it is closer to the Beijing trends, as you say, it's because the Northerners won. Yes, indeed. I know the <laughs> Southerners, once again, seems like there are many points in history where the South always loses in some, in some sense on some continent. And I think that's absolutely true. And also, you know, the, the Beijing Mandarin just became, I think, really by sheer force of power. You know, there's the there's a phrase that, you know, difference between a language and dialect, right? That's said by this famous Yiddish linguist. The difference between a, a language and dialect is that a language is a dialect with guns. So, <laughs> and I think that's, that's very true because language politics is all about power. And even when you talk about your childhood and how, you know, pinging seemed very easy. And I said, well, Bopomofo actually seemed pretty natural to me too. You know, after all, there is no inherent relationship between a mark that we put on the paper and what something sounds like, right? So in fact, it is all about an arbitrary association that is then mm-hmm. reinforced and ingrained over time from our parents through institutional educational force that make us feel as if this is natural and this is the way it should be. In fact, when I think about it, you know, language, we talk about native speakers and mother tongues and these very essentializing ideas as though they were perfectly acceptable, but we wouldn't talk, say the same about race or gender, right? So it does feel like mother tongue, the power of language really is that last bastion of essential, you know, it's the essentialism and reservoir of our identity that we haven't been willing to interrogate all that much. So in yeah. many ways, you know, that's the, now that's the more bookish argument of, of my story, but that's why I decided that to write this book, I wanted to simply not make the argument, but to embed it in the storytelling, because I feel that's what's most important. I wanted it to do several things. I wanted to put a Western reader in the shoes of these Chinese, um, these adorable, curmudgeonly, hard to take, but utterly human Chinese characters um, who were behind this script revolution. And it's the longest and least known revolution of the 20th century. I thought you had a very admirable stab at that because for you know people who don't speak Chinese, you know, I thought you made things very accessible. For example, in describing a geometric classification of Chinese, you described it as putting all the round letters together, C, G, O, and P. You know, that was such a you know such a way, great way of I think bridging that gap for people who are not Chinese speakers. Just going back to that idea of dialect as identity as well then because I think what we're seeing in the PRC now is that standard pronunciation has become such a marker of education that regional dialects are dying out very very slowly very very naturally but we're seeing you know I'm, I'm a millennial but the people younger than me they're more, more like much more likely to only be able to speak standard dialect rather than their regional dialect which their grandparents and great-grandparents would be able to speak so we're seeing a kind of a homogenization attempt which comes from this dialect being so helpful and useful and functional, but at the same time, it does lose that diversity that we talked about as being a problem before. It is true, and it's, it's a real trade-off, isn't it? Because, in fact, languages go extinct all the time. It's kind of like species in, in, in the world. 
they go out of existence, and also new languages come into being. So it is really the most dynamic reflection, you know, alongside our reality and our own evolution development as communities that have to come to terms with one another. So I think it's actually quite remarkable that in the language story, what it tells us is how, even though language gain less diversity through standardization, at the same time. That's also because they come into contact much more than before in a strange way in a global world, right? Where、mm. standardization is kind of like what you need to get your foot in the door, to be on an international stage, to compete, right? To joust and to have new arenas for your power. That's not just a speaker next, you know, in the next village, but the next continent. Yeah, and just. To paint out one more problem, which is just the prevalence of illiteracy, and partly that's going to be down to the complicated characters that you've already described, but partly that was also because of the existence of the classical Chinese in written traditions, isn't it? The classical versus the vernacular. You've got this incredible stat that at the turn of the 20th century, less than a third of Chinese men were literate, and two percent of Chinese women. You can see why that's a problem. So, can you tell us about what is the difference between the classical Chinese and vernacular, and why is that important? Well, the power and the right to writing was only reserved for the elite, for the few, and the majority of Chinese population did not really speak or read that kind of language, and so you know, literary Chinese or classical Chinese was really a symbol of authority, of elitism, of power, and so it was not given to the masses. But what happened in the late nineteenth century? With the onslaught Westernization, with the need to nationalize, when you look at the masses, right, the people are what fuels a nation. Then it became very clear to China that, in order to modernize, we have to educate our citizens. And how do we do that if they have no access to the written word? And then the question immediately became, well, what is the written word? Literary Chinese takes a long time to master.、Um, is a very kind of refined, concise language, full of illusions. So you basically have to have Amassed a trove of knowledge before you can even sort of understand, and there's a long, long tradition, of course, that have been building. So it's not really accessible to the layman, and that's why people start advocating. Well, what if we write as we speak? What if people start writing their own vernacular on paper, instead of this terse kind of succinct literary language? And so there, that was the bigger divide, right? That that the. If you were to give the power of the language to the people, then literary Chinese, basically, as many said at the time, had to be tossed out.、Mm, and and the author Lu Xun was one of those leading that fight in both his work and also just in general campaigning. Do you think it's such a bizarre system? I think for English speakers to try to understand the difference between that. And I thought your book had a really great analogy, which is just comparing it to, you know, the educated speaking and writing in Latin versus the. Uneducated, let's say in medieval England, who only spoke English and therefore were locked out of all of the the knowledge of the Bible, and then the the Reformation that came after that. But even that's two different languages. What I kind of find difficult to express and partly to understand myself is just what is it about the same language that you can make? You can write it as classical or literary, and you can do it as vernacular. Is it just the way you use certain words? Um, yes, certainly vocabulary. I mean, a lot of literary Chinese, the characters actually you don't see very often at all in the kind of books that we read now or newspapers. It's it's it evolves as a longer tradition, and it's just become a kind of separate. Imagine Latin, imagine Latin and Italian, right? Or imagine ancient Greek and modern Greek. 
So it's basically these two repertoires, and they're basically you know the difference between dead and living language. Except for China, for Chinese language, what is unique is it is the oldest living language, right? Because people are still using characters, which is maybe not the same characters. There's supposed to be eighty thousand characters, and apparently more are being discovered. And some dispute about <laughs> whether they're original or not. But but luckily, you only need about、mm, about four to five thousand for、uh, advanced literacy.、Mm. And so those are the problems. Then let's talk about some of the solutions. And just staying on with the classical and the vernacular, as I said, authors like Lu Xun really pushed for that change towards the vernacular. How? What was that struggle like? Because you're telling educated people, look, it's important that everyone else becomes educated too. I mean, that must have been had some kind of elitist pushback at that. Yes, and actually, the period you're talking about, Lu Xun was in the twenties and thirties. By this time. We also have the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, and in the following decades, when the strife between the nationalists and communists became very more more contested, it was clear that language was going to be churned up in it as well, and that's exactly what happened. So the nationalists came up with a romanization system in the 20s, 国语罗马字 which I talked about, which essentially tried to spell out basically forget Chinese character writing, but use like an auxiliary. Western alphabetic system to sound out Chinese, and that the communists also came up with their own, which was came through more the Soviet influence. It was called the Latin New Script, and the Latin New Script claimed that it was going to do one better because it was going to go straight to the people and actually phoneticize and write people's spoken dialects、mm-hmm. in alphabet letters, not just Mandarin. So in the twenties and thirties, language reform and the A Chinese script revolution literally became braided into the revolution that we know. The several struggles between communists and nationalists, the pending war with the Japanese, not to mention the Pacific War, World War Two. So language really became inextricably a part of this whole process of revolutionizing and modernizing China.、Mm, and we obviously know who won out of that struggle in China in the Civil War. So. Is that、uh, Latinate alphabet that you describe? Is that the early version of what Chinese people now know as Pinyin? It sure is. But what is often forgotten is that China, the communists are also communist China is also credited with simplification of characters, and just as I mentioned, both nationalists and communists had their own romanization system in the twenties. The simplified characters were also proposed by the nationalists first. As early as 1909, even this is extraordinary, and they actually proposed their own set of simplified characters in the in the 30s. But it couldn't push it through. They couldn't push it through because China was so tied up with war and revolution, and there was not really a stable government. So it was impossible to push these things through. And so when Mao came to power, he really inherited this legacy that he had lived through. You know, during the May Fourth Movement, which is where the fight between literary Chinese and vernacular kind of came to the fore. You know, Mao was a humble librarian's assistant at Beida, and then he was also sent home to Changsha. He was really looking at this as the revolution of the twentieth century. So you know, young Mao remembered that. So when he came to the came to power in the nineteen fifties, just within months, he had appointed a committee who was to be charge of romanizing and setting a standard for Pinyin. Because also remember, by this time, we actually had plenty of romanizations for Chinese. Left by missionaries from the 16th century, 19th century, but of course missionaries, you know, they were these you know tireless travelers who went to any place in all corners of China. So what they ended up recording and romanizing was whatever Chinese dialect was spoken on the ground. 
that's why you have these weird things like you know when I talk about why is Beijing Peking for、mm-hmm. such a long time? Why is it Peking Duck? We still call it Peking Duck. We don't say Beijing Duck, and it's really because of this foreign system which never quite. Um, it didn't sit very easily with Chinese speakers because it's kind of awkward at these apostrophes that out of nowhere that were really to cue foreign speakers, not Chinese speakers. So with all these romanizations out there, there's also no way to really standardize and put out one face, one alphabetic face for the Chinese script, and that's what Mao ended up doing in the 1950s. But of course, I also talk about how. The first romanization really came from this, you know, romanization of Chinese by Chinese. Really came from this Sino-Muslim community that was in exile since the late nineteenth century, and who basically lived completely outside of this tidal wave of nationalization and this completely bloody and revolutionary era. So they were actually the ones, you know, because they came under the Soviet. Territory and Soviet policy in nineteenth and nineteen twenties and thirties, they're the ones who actually ended up Romanizing their language first <laughs> in Soviet Union. So it's pretty extraordinary how these you know different strands, but they're definitely from my perspective, there were definitely two beginnings of Pinyin. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Well, let's talk about what Pinyin is, because in Mandarin it means literally to spell out sounds. So it is the system of romanization, as you say, is a consistent national system used in the People's Republic of China. And you know, when I was studying Chinese as a schoolchild in in China, Pinyin was always. Part and parcel of learning the characters themselves. It showed me, in a very understandable way, the phonetic pronunciations of the words that I'm meant to be saying, especially in the kind of standardized pronunciation that you've talked about already that Mao established in the 1950s. So it's a really revolutionary system, I think, because even for you know any if any lessons have started trying to learn Chinese themselves, if you see a character, it can be difficult to know how you say that or what it is.、Uh, but if you have Pinyin, especially with the four tones of Mandarin on there, you know exactly how to say that. And so actually, that is really pretty revolutionary. It is, and I love the fact that you went through the PRC system, and I actually came up through the Taiwan system.、Mm-hmm. So. When I learned Chinese, it was actually bopomofo alongside learning characters. So from the very get-go, we were just practicing character after character, you know, twenty, thirty times a day. You know, written these little square boxes, square ruled notebooks. And for me, I didn't learn Pinyin till I was in college here in the States. So I had always known bopomofo, which was an earlier system that was prescribed and invented in the early twentieth century. But during this whole discussion of Pinyin, they realized that. It would be too difficult for foreigners to learn, right? That it makes sense for the Chinese, so there was a compromise there, right? They did not want to go with Wei Giles forever, but they also didn't want to come up with something that was so internal to the Chinese and only、uh, good for the Chinese that it would be hard to communicate with the outside world with it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I could definitely see that, and I want to talk about Taiwan some more later as well. For now, can we also discuss while we're on the communist side, you know, this creation of the simplified script versus the traditional script, because that's very very meaty. As you've already mentioned, it's a journey that began way before the Chinese Communist Party. But I thought your book was really refreshingly fair in giving credit to the Chinese Communist Party for actually being able to push it through. So actually simplifying the strokes of thousands of these overcomplicated Chinese characters, so that people can learn them better, and something that that the Nationalist Party tried to do, but they were met with conservative inertia within the party. And I guess it's just a communist, you know, revolutionary zeal. They don't care about tradition, and that meant that they could actually push through something like that. 
It is pretty extraordinary because, frankly, if if you ask linguists or if you asked Chinese that turn the twentieth century, who espouse this idea of evolution and survival of the fittest, which was kind of the new ideology from the West, by all counts, Chinese language should not have survived. The written Chinese script itself is so complicated, and any linguist would tell you that languages tend toward simplification. That's how they adapt and survive. So the fact that this enormously complex writing system survives now and thrives is really a true testimony to, to the sheer will of the state behind it, and it takes that. All national standardization takes the power of the state, right? And that's why it's such a symbol, integral part of national sovereignty. You know, apart from blood and soil, territoriality is really the language. Mm. And well, we see that as well, don't we? Because you know, going back to that conservative inertia, I think, and I wonder what you think about this: that in Chinese culture, there is a special place for the script. That a script is seen as an inherent part of your identity as a Chinese person. You've already mentioned, for example, in the way that which elite people practice calligraphy just as a cultural pursuit. And today, we see that places like Taiwan and Hong Kong, which didn't adopt that simplified communist script. Find a kind of pride in their closeness to traditional、uh, Chinese. At least, certainly, some people do, and they see that as a way in which you know their particular type of Chinese culture is better than the mainland type, and all that sort of thing. And I, I mean, you, you must yes, have similar when you're growing up in Taiwan. Absolutely, and that's the irony, and which I only learned later because in Taiwan we were taught you know traditional Chinese characters, but. It turns out that they were the ones who actually talked about simplified. So I certainly think the nineteen forty nine split, right, the victory of the communists and the retreat of the nationalists to Taiwan, that was such a watershed event that completely overshadows how we actually understand Chinese language now. Because as you say, we tend to think, oh, the difference is Taiwan observes the long form and China PRC observes the short form. But it's actually not true. But that split, that political. Fallout certainly hardened the stance on both sides, right? Where the nationalist government in Taiwan insisted that it would be the bearer, the proper bearer of Chinese cultural heritage, including its written heritage, whereas the PRC would go the route of revolution and you know mass literacy and efficiency and modernization. Do you remember growing up with traditional Chinese? Do you remember, you know, whether or not it was easy for you to read simplified Chinese instinctively? Because I, I feel like. You know, being steeped in the simplified Chinese environment, I can kind of work my way around traditional script, but it is very, very complicated. I just wondered if that relationship was reciprocal. Oh, that's interesting. I think it's probably always better to go from complicated to simple,、right? <laughs> probably the other way around. <laughs> And certainly for me, I prefer to read poetry in traditional form. Just you know, I think because I learned complex characters first, it just has a more emotionally evocative feel to me. And I can read it. And I remember when I first learned simplified characters、uh, much later in life, I couldn't quite because you know the simplified form also went a little overboard at one point where characters became so simple they look too much alike and you can't really <laughs> tell what they are anymore. So you know, luckily they kind of retracted that campaign. But I remember just reading it and thinking that it was lacking something. It was lacking some kind of feel, some kind of intuition, and I couldn't connect with it very well. That's so interesting. Do you think that's an aesthetic thing? Because I do think that traditional Chinese looks more beautiful, it looks more complex and elegant, whereas simplified can be a bit functional. Is that what you're what what you were tapping into? 
I think so. And, and you know, it's funny. I, this is this is a good time to tell you the story of how this book actually came about. Because I actually was originally looking at a very objective question to answer, which is, is it really a disadvantage to be thinking, writing, and learning in a complicated writing system rather than the Western alphabet?、Mm-hmm. And so I tracked down these neuroscientists, one in Paris and one here in the States, who were studying the science of reading. And they were talking about how you know the writing, the history of writing is only about five thousand years. So that is very short span within evolution, which means that we cannot have adapted fast enough to have a capacity or facility just for reading written language. So it turns out is actually built on a more primitive infrastructure of recognizing patterns in nature, which in a very strange way resonates almost completely with the Chinese. Theory of the origin of character writing, right? You remember the story of the sage, the four-eyed sage, who looked up at the clouds and the patterns of their formation, and looked down to see the tracks left by birds, you know, in nature. And he—that's how he got the inspiration. So writing was very much a part of nature, right?、It、has this. So it's not just a writing system for the Chinese. It also—it also had this almost like talismanic power. Right, it is kind of somehow corresponds with the universe and cosmic principles of you know the regulatory rhythm of nature. So writing system in Chinese, and this is why I think Chinese kept it at all costs、mm-hmm. because it just has this extraordinary uniqueness. Yeah, I mean, is, do you think that's also why people are quite orthodox about how they write a character? Because in English, you know, you can write, you know, you mentioned A or B. You can start wherever you want to in that letter. You can start wherever you want to in the position of that letter. Whereas in Chinese, it's a very orthodox way of a traditional way of you have to start from the left to the right and the top to the bottom, roughly speaking. But a character, if you don't write it in that order, then there's something wrong. <laughs> then there's something wrong you're doing. Yes, you get jeered at and humiliated and made fun of in school. That's for sure.、Yeah. And when you're an adult, you just looked at as someone who's not very learned. People、mm-hmm. will whisper, and it's true. There's that particular sequence and the rules and the indoctrination of how characters are supposed to be written. This also goes back to the long calli- the practice of calligraphy, right? But what's interesting is there's a contemporary artist Xu Bing, whom you know. He suggests in the short documentary film he made, he suggests that somehow this adherence, right, this order that's been ingrained in our minds as young children in just learning how to write the language, also made us more observant and more docile to authority. So isn't that interesting? I'm not sure if I would quite go that far, but、mm-hmm. I think there's something about understanding the regulatory framework in which culture works. That certainly can be applied to Chinese writing system. Yeah, and it's certainly more prescriptive as a culture and as a writing system. Absolutely. And so I want to talk about the tech part of things because I think you know you come from a linguist background, but it was very incredible how much technological things you managed to put in here. And somewhat a lot of it, especially later on when we get into the internet age, kind of went over my head. But let's start with the first part, which is just the adaptation of this complicated non-alphabetic language to essentially. Western developed communication technologies like telegraphy and typewriters, based on alphabets, as you've already said. How do people get around that? So actually, maybe you can start by maybe just explaining how does telegraph, for example, work, and why would that have been a problem for Chinese? Right. It is hard to overestimate how communications technology dominate our technological sphere today. So throughout the twentieth century, that's been China's been trying to catch up to, and this book is very much about the science technology of the Chinese writing system, 
And so when you look at telegraphy, which is really the internet of the 19th century, China was in a very different position. It did not actually have a say in how Chinese language entered telegraphy. And it was basically imposed by this Danish company um, who hired a French harbor master to come up with an easy code to transmit Chinese in telegraphs. Now, of course, telegraph at the time was transmitted via Morse code, dots and dashes that in combinations represented each letter of the alphabet, 26 letter alphabet, with another zero to nine for numbers. So off the bat, you know that this is not a system that's going to work for Chinese. So, and the Chinese didn't really have a say in it because they were very suspicious of Western technology at the time. You know, the Russians tried to get them to build telegraph lines. You know, the French came in every time. The Chinese said, no, thank you. We've got good men on horseback who can (laughs) deliver messages and letters just fine. But of course, you know, this is really... The same, there's the same period as the post-Opium War where the Western powers, was, they were not going to take no for an answer. And so the Danes, of course, just pushed it through and stealthily laid a cable on the Chinese soil one night and then pushed their way in. And so by the time China got in the game and decided, okay, we obviously, we have to be proactive about this. Otherwise, we're just going to get gobbled up anyway. It was a, a problem because the Danes had come up with a way of rendering Chinese into Morse code by obviously you can't use letters. So they use numbers. They just came up with random four digit you know, codes and assigned them randomly to Chinese characters. So it actually, yes, you can get Chinese characters into telegraphy, but it was very hard and very inefficient to use and prone to mistakes as you can imagine, right? Cause you basically have to look up everything. Whereas with 26 letters, the operator basically just memorized it. And, you know, actually they were able to tell what word they typed out just by the sound and the duration, the rhythm of the clicks. That's not going to happen. That did not happen with Chinese writing. And so it was something that the Chinese had to correct. They sent delegates to the International Telegraphic Union in 1924 to try to even out this asymmetry. And through a lot of cajoling, a very diplomatic handling, they were finally at least allowed Chinese to be recognized as an exceptional language because the problem was, if you look at how Morse code was sent, it was cheaper for letters than it was for numbers. So Chinese, by virtue of having been representing numbers, were massively much more expensive than sending the English or French. And Chinese was the only language that, you know, whereas Italian could be Italian, French could be French, English could be English, Chinese had to be something else. It had to be in numbers. And so these, the pricing problem also became a huge issue, which is what this particular delegate that I talked about, Wang Chunming, was in Paris to correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely see why that's a political problem, because if it's more expensive and slower for you to use essentially the internet of the time, then obviously as a country and as a people, you're not going to be able to be up to scratch with your competitors, especially in the West. And that's the incredible historical context throughout your book, I think, because you start at the end of the Second Opium War in 1860. And, you know, it's this period of people thinking, gosh, how did China get to the state? How did we decline so much? How did the empire crumble? And as you say, these group of kind of second and B and C list 
reformers who saw language as part of the problem, not the other systems, or although they probably were problems too, but language was the way. So I, reading this book, I felt like it was an incredible history lesson as well. And I recently interviewed Bill Hayton, who's the author of The Invention of China, who talks about a similar period, well, the same period, but different people, who Liang Qichao, uh, Kan Youwei, who were doing the more political things. But here you're talking about how lang- language is so important to that revival of China as like a world power, which I thought was just fascinating. And it really underpins, and you know, with greater precision, each of these historical moments that generally historians know about, but then don't know about, because the language itself, you know, Wang Zhao, the Buddhist monk, his Mandarin proposal that was actually drawn from Manchu, and the kana syllabary in Japanese. So already, this you're absolutely right that what I intended to this book. Was is basically a story about China and the West, but told through the lens of language that gives you an unseen window into its people, like how they struggle in this very poignant way. That's not like what a revolution would do or what a you know what what a peasant would do. It's not the high and lows. It's really this kind of basically people like you and me who you know decide to go against the zeitgeist and decide to do something about it. By the time we get to the typewriting era, these are the young, you know, the prototypical Chinese Americans who were sent by China on America's dime,、um, the reparation payments from the Boston Indemnity, sent to America to study, to study science and to study technology, to learn about American culture. You know, they came wide-eyed. They were uncertain. They had to be taught, you know, how not to spit in public, how to use. <laughs> Forks and knives instead of chopsticks in you know in 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 the states, and they experienced this whole new world. And their question was, okay, we have this national language, but how do we make Chinese accessible for communications technology like typewriting? How do we mechanize it for global use? Yeah, amazing. And talking about that relationship between the West and China as well, because again, growing up in the PRC culture, you don't hear very much about the West's positive influence on China of that period. But it is the characters that you're talking about, the Western influencers, whether they're Sinophiles and they love the language and they love the culture, or they're businessmen, as you talked about with the Danes trying to crack the Chinese market, or just people who enjoyed a logical puzzle. It was fascinating to hear about. How these Westerners had a positive influence on that, and I just didn't, you know, people who committed their lives to adapting Chinese, and they weren't even Chinese themselves. No, they weren't. And I think one of the greatest findings to come out of working on this book is to understand how the West and China have been learning and influence each other long before they turned foes. And I think that's such an important lesson to keep in mind now in the international and political landscape we live in. And it's true. Like who can who can imagine that a French count? You know, after burning his <laughs> summer palace, he was captured by the Chinese. He was then rescued. He apparently was mutilated. Actually, some documents suggest he was castrated. He came back, and what's the first thing he thought of? He was undeterred. It did not sort of put him off. He actually wanted to devise the first telegraphic code for Chinese, right? Which I talk about became this kind of esoteric exercise,、uh, kind of a one-off thing that didn't quite catch. But nonetheless, people like him were these missionaries. These you know German French protosynologists who argue with each other, fought each other. I mean the the you know the struggle to crack the Chinese code, right? Seventeenth century in England, they were talking about it as God's mother tongue, 
because they thought Chinese actually represented truer things and truer objects than Western language that was weighed down by ornateness and rhetoric, etc. So you know there was a definitely a love affair on the part of the on the West with the Chinese language that had its ups and downs. <laughs> by the time we get to the century of the Opium War, Chinese was seen as backward. Primitive, a cumbersome writing system that was not going to get China into the modern age.、Mm. And Jing, I just have one final question for you, which is just that I don't know if you've read、uh, Liu Cixing's Three Body Problem, but a tiny, tiny spoiler. Okay, great, you've read it. Which is just that in the future that he envisages, three hundred, five hundred, six hundred years in the future, the people, the language that people will speak is this mix of Chinese and English. And I thought that was such a fascinating part of his book, where you would just have English vocab chucked into Chinese and vice versa, which we're seeing, starting to see in Chinese now. I think, which is just even people who are not bilingual, who don't really know English that well, they know certain English vocab and they will use it as part of their sentences. As a linguist, do you think that's a viable feature for、um, <laughs> the world language? Well, it's interesting because I, I I have this thought that if Chinese were to become a real global language, a global lingua franca would be through a different route than English, because one reason English has become a global lingua franca is also because English is much looser about how you pronounce it, right? Which、mm. is why we have Hinglish and Singlish and all these varieties, and it's easier to adapt. And there's no institution in the English speaking world that cares too much about how you butcher English to get by, and yet we can use it anywhere from like a taxi ride in Tanzania, which I did, to wherever else you go to. So I think the issue with Chinese is. It does have a very standardizing force. So yes, you might be able to hear a mix of Chinese and English, but will the two script systems really mix? So what China has done is basically come up with a romanization system, but it's still quite distinct from the Chinese character writing system. It was decided early on that, okay, we're going to romanize, but it's not going to be a replacement. Right? It's not going to be a substitute. It's going to be an auxiliary system so that China can. Turn outward and engage with the world, but at the same time keep its character writing as its cultural core. Yeah, Jingtu, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you so much, Cynthia. What a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of Perspective channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.